The Roast is brought to you by the Whitworth University Master of Arts in Administrative and Nonprofit Leadership, preparing leaders, educators, and organizers for a better future. Attend classes in the evening and complete your degree in two years. Discover more at www.whitworth.edu. Today's episode of the Roast Podcast features a discussion on the cultural origins of our food choices and how they define who we are today. American cuisine is anything but basic, so grab yourself some comfort food and let's dig in. I'm Jill Turner, and this is the Roast Podcast. It's not a far stretch to say that the pemmican of the indigenous North Americans has grown in popularity over the centuries, and it's now available to purchase in gas stations across the United States as jerky. Okay, maybe jerky is a bit obvious. What about spaghetti and meatballs or chop suey? Those don't sound American. Yet Italians didn't use meatballs and their sauce wasn't in existence when the United States were colonized. Chow mein and chop suey came from the Chinese laborers who would work in the gold mines of California and across the states on the railroads. They brought a style of eating and nutrition that was unknown to the Spanish and British settlers who were here in the early days. They used vegetables, rice, and noodles in their dishes when other laborers ate rotting potatoes and rotting meat that had been provided by the employers to less discriminated employees. Chow mein and chop suey don't exist on any menu in China. They translate to leftovers with noodles and leftovers with rice. One of the ways we learn about history, besides letters and records, are artifacts that tell us about the history of food. And there are also words. Why do we call something one word when another culture calls it another word? For example, every English-speaking country in the world except the United States calls a sweet, crispy, baked good a biscuit. India, Canada, Australia, a package would say sweet biscuits. In America, we call that a cookie. That word comes from the Dutch. The Dutch had a colony you may have heard of called New York or New Netherlands, and they were the masters of the South Sea spice trade. That meant their population had access to the best spices in the world. Yum. Other words we get from them are boss and stoop. But cookie is a Dutch word that changed American vocabulary. In the turn of the century, companies like Nabisco, also known as the National Biscuit Company, labeled their sweet biscuits cookies. Early in the 19th century, Texas gave us chili con carne. Red chilies, kidney beans, and beef. That's a classic chili con carne. In the late 1840s, America's boundary spread across the continent and chili con carne had its own sense of manifest destiny, spreading from sea to shining sea. Outfitters, like cattle drivers, were coming up from Texas and going up north as well as pioneer families traveled in wagon trains. The outfitters created chili bricks, which were hard rectangles shaped like a brick of dried beef, beans, suet, minced chilies, and some other seasonings that could easily be reconstituted with water for meals on the trail. Then the, invitation, then the invention of commercially available powdered chili became known. 
After the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, where thousands of Americans ate chili con carne for the first time, people across the country began to dig into chili with great gusto. This is not the only food that comes from a World's Fair. There was a source for great novelties like Cracker Jack. It's invented in Chicago with molasses and peanut coating for popcorn. But like other popcorn balls, they don't taste very good if you wait too long. They get soggy. So they invented waxed paper. With that sealed wax paper, Cracker Jacks could now be shipped. Hot dogs were launched there also. Hot dogs in a roll, not the sausage, but the one that's placed in a roll split lengthways that can be eaten without silverware. Nathan then takes it to Coney Island, where it really takes off. Rice is interesting because it's a crop that was made possible through the skills of Africans who were brought over to work in the farms outside of Charleston. They brought with them the skills of growing rice for 500 years. They taught the culture there how to grow rice when sugarcane was failing. And rice takes over as one of the most valuable crops grown in America. It will also lead to new dishes being created in the kitchen, such as gumbo. Because in the kitchen, these really talented cooks would combine their African traditions with the new world foods like corn and create these stews and soups and fried vegetables and do things that British people were used to. The people in the plantation society adopted these foods without realizing they were eating some of the best African-influenced food that will appear in the new world. It's this combination of African influence, Native American and European flavoring, and the chili peppers from Central America and Mexico that make it truly an American dish. Today's interview is with Richard Lidner. Richard is a chef and has been in food service for over 20 years. He trained at Western Culinary Institute and Le Cordon Bleu. He has worked in diverse cultural cuisine, including Italian, French, and Thai. While he can create dishes that can make you swoon, he also appreciates the simple nostalgia of mac and cheese, for that is the comforting aroma that greeted me as we sat down to chat. So what are some of your favorite foods, and how are you introduced to them? <laughs> um, my favorite foods are probably breakfast foods. Mm. And most of them are introduced to me, or were introduced to me from my mom. Okay. Uh, German pancakes. Oh, yes. Head over heels over German pancakes. It takes me back to when I was five years old and they were coming fresh out of the oven and oh, sends tingles in my brain just thinking about it. Oh, yes. We were powdered sugar and lemon with our German pancakes. Lemon. What do you put with your German pancakes? Huh. Lots of butter oh. and then powdered sugar, but I like like it to get this nice crystally layer of that powdered sugar yes crumbly where it's not not quite thick uh not quite powdery but not uh -huh. quite liquidy either that's that's the way i do yeah and do you do individual ones or like a great big family size one how do you do yours um i have a small cast iron pan i cook one for the little kids in uh-huh and then i cook a big one for myself and <laughs> Like Oreos, those are only ever sold in one serving portions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yes. All right, Richard. When did what we eat for dinner change? For example, I grew up on like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and tuna casseroles. And my kids eat 
pad thai and sushi and all kinds of other things. When did that change for Americans? Um, best speculated time frame as I could give you was after the depression, because that's when things started changing again. Um, and, and, and in reality, in America, food has always been changing. Okay. Um, because we're not a country where like, like native American cuisine, that's a different thing. That's going to be what they found, what they gathered, what they hunted and how they prepared that into their food. That's kind of their cultural significance. But as American cuisine is defined today, it's what did the Irish eat when they came over here from I, um, from Europe? What did the Africans, people, slaves bring over when they were brought over here? You know, what did the French bring when they had their part? What did the Mexicans bring up when they came over? And from, you know, that you extend that to every other country in the world and you wonder, you know, ask yourself, where did our cuisine come from? Well, it came from everywhere else. Oh, but with the refrigeration, sorry, I got a little off track there. <laughs> oh, no, that makes a big difference. Totally. <laughs> um, as far as like the ability to transport goods, fresh, cold, hot, however it is we do those, as technology progresses, our ability to do that changes a lot too. When I was a kid, a mango was not something you would go to the store and buy. You could not legitimately find a way to transport it safe and fast enough for it to still be good by the time it came to our stores. And nowadays, I could buy it any number of ways, including fresh or unripe. So how has immigration affected the modern palate? Well, with, with the different flavors and the different ways, um, each culture builds their food up and creates their dishes. You know, when some of those families immigrate over here or just decide, hey, I'm coming over here, they have they have their family recipes, their way of slicing, their way of dicing. You cook it just right, this long, this method, and they put out something good. And people say, hey, that's really good. How do I make that for myself? And then they, they go back into that and they start working it and, and more people come over. They try different things. They cook it their way special. And, and as we get more people from more countries, more diversity from the world into our culture, it just kind of slows and, and spreads out. People get excited about new things. So how has modern medicine, health trends, and agriculture affected modern recipes? Well, modern medicine, I don't know. Okay. That one, that one's kind of a vague one, um, unless you delve into the cannabinoids category, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Okay. Also something I know very little about, but I know enough. Okay. Um, and outside of that, let's talk about health trends then. Um, how about like the ketogenic diet is very popular right now. Um, paleo diets, um, individuals with celiac disease, 
different things like that. Um, how does that impact what we have for modern recipes? Well, when I grew up, mm -hmm. um, and especially previous to that in, in the history of just America, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we used flour, we used a roux to, to thicken up a lot of stuff, and roux is just flour and butter. Well, you have celiacs, they can't have that flour, and some can't even have anything that was cooked in something that was cooked with bread in it. So yeah. you get some pretty end, high end severe severes there. Um, if you can't eat gluten, well, you're cut out of quite a bit of French cuisine, quite a bit of Italian cuisine, um, other other branches out there also. Um, so you you have to start exploring. Well, what can I eat? Okay, well that really didn't taste good without having any flour. How else can I make it? Or what else might be good that isn't anything like that? So you start branching out and trying new things. Uh, keto diets and stuff like that, you know, you're cutting out certain parts of your diet, so you have to eat other things. That affects the food that we prepare and how we prepare it, mm -hmm. um, the ingredients we use, the flavors that comes out, the textures. How challenging is that in a commercial kitchen when someone comes to you and says, can you make it this way for me? Well, uh, depending on a lot of variables in there just as a generalized standard honestly shouldn't be that hard okay that's now, encouraging you, you go to a fast food chain or one of the more chain style restaurants that's a lot harder because but but at the same point also a lot simpler is they'll have like oh you have a gluten-free thing well we have this gluten-free meal you can have that or you can not <laughs> <laughs> there you go you take it or you leave it pretty okay. much okay it sounds like my mother's table but a lot of the more cooking restaurants, a lot of the more less franchise, more mom and pop shops, or okay. just even like just some of the, the restaurants that just have people who are actually cooking your food. A lot of times we're building it to order. So you're saying, Hey, I can't have flour. Okay. Well, we don't put anything that has flour in it. We use a cutting board that's specifically designed for allergy use. And then we cook it in whatever means we have to. It doesn't more so nowadays than even 10 years ago, a lot more easy and accessible. We prepare ourselves for that eventuality. Mm -hmm. What is the most common way for foods to jump culture barriers? Um, moving. That's, that's the best way. Um, that's the most common too. Um, okay. I had a friend move here from Iraq and <laughs> He had never tried some stuff, and when he did, he was like, holy cow, I'm, my mind is completely blown from this. I've never tried that before. Uh -huh. Would have never thought about it. And then he brought over some uh, some kebabs, and <laughs> that was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Try new things. You, know, you, you don't have access to those ingredients readily accessible anymore. Yeah. Different things are available. That becomes more cooking out of necessity and invention out of necessity. What are some of the foods or cooking styles that people worldwide would think of as typically being American? I think of us as like getting a little bit from everybody, but say you go to Iraq, what do they say is American? You go to Italy, what do they say is American? 
if you're in India, what would they say is American? Um, probably pizza and burgers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> pizza the way we perceive pizza. Yeah. Which, which I, I, I don't have a lot of experience traveling as much, but I learned things. I know that I was, I was told <laughs> long ago that in, is it Italy or Spain? A good friend had gone there and visited with his, like, had gone on a trip. Mm -hmm. He came back. He's like, yeah, I ordered an American breakfast. And they gave me bacon, eggs, hash browns, orange juice, more bacon, and a glass of red wine. And I was like, well, all of that sounds very American breakfast. Uh-huh. To tag on that one, um, how does cultural foods change when they're being cooked in like a tropical or subtropical or temperate climates? Like how you'd make pizza in Hawaii probably is not how you'd make pizza in New York or in Italy. What are the differences? Um, some of it is just style, access to ingredients, because mm -hmm. using Hawaii as a good example there. Uh, there's not a lot of dairy on Hawaii. Yeah. So you're not going to use your mozzarella or provolone mix, with, which most American pizza joints use. Mm -hmm. um, you'll have to have an alternate something else that either simulates or replicates that flavor and texture. Um, so it's not really accessible or it's ridiculously expensive. You're going to find something else similar to that to substitute it out and there changes your whole new aspect of your pizza yeah plus you may not have the same equipment i mean i've known people who cook pizzas on grills uh-huh and pizzas in ovens and pizzas on an open fire i mean what's your favorite uh the grill actually was the best nice. yeah a little smokiness a little was nice <laughs> <laughs> awesome um, so how does eating out, uh, more often change what we eat? Availability. Um, plus plenty of people are into trying new things, mm -hmm. which I love. <laughs> There's only ever one thing I suggest you taste in the kitchen and that's everything. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, but with more stuff available, um, different styles, different things. You try something, you're like, hey, I really like that, but maybe that one was a little too tangy. I'm going to try this other places. Uh -huh. Oh, I really like that one, but it's a little too sweet. So we're going to try this other place. And then, wow, if that was good, how is that not good? Let's try that. Nice. All right. How has the proliferation of U.S. political and military influence around the world changed traditional um, and ethnic cultural foods? Um, that one I'd have to stab more in the dark on. Okay. But I would have to say taxes and tariffs. I mean, if you can no longer, when I worked in a Thai restaurant, mm -hmm. we had troubles with accessing products sometimes. We'd be like, hey, I need this black chili paste. I use this black chili paste in like six dishes. Mm -hmm. I can't not put it in there because it's a very powerful flavor. Well, Say, for example, they were taxed or tariffed uh -huh. so high that they didn't want to send their stuff or that they couldn't send their stuff. Now I, can, now I have to come up with something else. 
Um, and I can, chef, I can ask Chef Google for all sorts of recipes on how to make black chili paste, but without any of the experience and the cultural background bring up, uh, upbringing in there, I would have a real hard time coming up with something. Not, not impossible, but that's, that's how I would imagine taxation and okay. government military things going on and refugees. Yeah, we have a huge refugee population in the Pacific Northwest. And that is evolving and changing our food. How as so? We speak. speak to that. Um, well, <laughs> like I was commenting earlier about, you know, moving is a really good way to take things. Well, also in cahoots with the, uh, the question of accessibility of like, how has our food changed because of time? You know, well, as, as we're able to move product and grow product in different places, you know, hydroponics, sheds, shacks, whatever else, we have people coming over from these countries as refugees going, well, I'm going to cook my dolma the same way my grandma made her dolma. Uh -huh. um, well, I don't have these, or I'm going to bring these ingredients in from this, this store, buy them, eat them, cook them, you know, and other people are like, wow, that was really good. What'd you do for that? And you share your little bit of your knowledge. And that person says, okay, well, you know, if he did that, what if I did it like this? Maybe, maybe instead of roasting it, I'm going to deep fry it. And then I'm going to mix that in there with that. Now you're, you're not just changing the ingredient a little bit. You're changing how you're cooking it, changes the flavor, the texture, the whole shebang. And then you're, you're adding to that and you're dynamic. So it's changing with the people coming here. <laughs> That's fascinating. So from the cultures that a lot of these different foods come from, did they, typically stay the same decade after decade or generation after generation or do they evolve the way they do when we get them like you said with deep frying them and, and uh yes and no okay um yes in the regard of you know somebody tries something new instead of grilling it they're going to deep fry it mm -hmm. well that that's going to change things and that's how they're going to take the same ingredients that they've grown up with and do something new or come up with a variation and that's that's where one of the changes will be but part of it also is just we have a whole new um as as we branch out as people our our borders get closer to get well not closer together but we get closer to our borders because we're filling up our countries mm -hmm. you know they're trading with their neighbors mm -hmm. so now instead of you know being able to get this squash only right here because there's not very much of it because there's the ability to transport it's harder now we can transport it farther faster mm -hmm. and there's more people in between so they're going hey i've never cooked with this i don't even know what a crookneck squash is so i'm gonna i'm gonna do this with it and i'm gonna do that with it and then i'm gonna you know here we go we have something to eat <laughs> so some of it is still a little bit past cultures really started uh -huh. off of the survival mechanism. What, what can we eat that won't kill us? And then they started going, well, this was good by itself, but what if we ate this? You know, a good example is pigs. You always eat apples with pigs or pork. Why is that? Sort. Do you know? I do actually. Awesome. Tell <laughs> it, me about it. It goes way, way, way back to like medieval era, uh -huh. but the human body is not designed to process pork. 
Oh. So if you eat apples, which is high in digestive fibers, uh -huh. your body starts processing stuff. So you eat a bunch of pork, you eat an apple with it, your body processes it where it normally would just pass it. Now you're getting something out of it. That's really fascinating. <laughs> um, that, that's food. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Okay, what other foods did we bring to America, um, like from our British roots? British roots. Most, most of the, a lot of the stuff. Ooh, that's a that's a rough one. Most of what they did in Britain was was boil every living snot out of something, and then they eat the tasteless mass that's left. No offense that to anyone miserable. out there. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> um, but you know they 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 bring that here, uh -huh. and they 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 know what they like to eat. But some of that is even uh, cultural misconceptions, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, a prime example of that is the tomato. I mean, when you think of an Italian food, you think of a tomato, right? Yeah. You, you got to have it. Yeah. Christopher Columbus was the first person to bring a tomato to Italy. Oh, fascinating. They so they're not originally Italian. No, actually, uh, tomatoes are indigenous to North America. Wow. So they, they didn't have a tomato until they yeah. discovered the new land and then take it back there and... Uh... Um, okay. <laughs> so another thought. Um, like in our current COVID environment, um, obviously restaurants have been impacted by that, by people not being able to go out or um, having to go orders placed. How has it affected restaurants that are um, like Moroccan or Indian where they sit down and things are family, family style traditionally. How has it impacted them? That, that, that's a whole nother thing. Some of those cuisines, mm -hmm. like my, my Iraq friend. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he cooks at home, and okay. he cooks in a community kitchen, and people still come and eat. Uh -huh. And it's a really fascinating experience, I guess. I've never actually been a part of it, but I wanted to. <laughs> um, even just to eat, I like his cooking. Um, but <laughs> without being able to go into the restaurant because you're you're legally not allowed to, yes, because of these. The regulations, regulations right and mm -hmm. parameters, it makes it really hard for those people. So you can, I would imagine the ones that are still open mm -hmm. are packing up their food in their same family style in a more family serving container mm -hmm. and sending it to, you know, you order it from Uber, you pick it up, they drop it off, you eat the food or they mm -hmm. have their own drivers or whatever. Um, and the people can still sit down with their family and eat as their family. Yeah, at home. Because a lot of people are also stuck at home. Yeah. So. Yeah. If the time comes that they're able to reopen, do you think that they're going to have to change how they serve people? Um, already that has a little bit affected the ones that do open. Mm -hmm. um, with the opening and the closing, There's you can't sit so close. You have to have certain distance between or mm -hmm. a or certain barrier um, that makes it harder to serve people 
it, it definitely impacts a lot of those smaller businesses because a lot of those family-oriented cuisines are mostly mom-and-pop shops. And mom-and-pop shops aren't really making it in this COVID um, fast food and really expensive stuff that you don't ask how much it costs because <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're that wealthy <laughs> are doing well enough. Yeah. Is there still a place for family recipe books? I think of like what my grandmother used to make and she could write it on a little postcard and I knew exactly what went into it and what it tasted like. Do people still do that? As a whole, I don't know. <laughs> um, as for me specifically, yeah, kind of. I do have a bunch of recipes of my own that uh -huh. I have either in my head or written down somewhere. Most of them are in my head um, because you cook from your heart, not your head. <laughs> and that's why mom's food always will taste better. Yes. Yeah. Exact same ingredients, exact same everything, but the same amount of love isn't there. That's the secret ingredient in all food. Um, but I would say, yeah, but I would also say that a lot of people's accessibility to already pre-made foods, um, even gourmet status uh, delivery makes a huge difference. So how does family food knowledge get passed down now? Um, by, by the people who still cook at home. That's the other, the other part of that is most people I want to say as a societal whole, mm -hmm. don't really eat at home. They don't really cook at home. Um, it, it's becoming less of a thing. So the people that do still cook at home will have those recipes and will teach it to their kids by eventually just, hey, dad, I'm bored. I don't want to sit and play video games or watch YouTube anymore. I'm bored. <laughs> I want to do something. What are you doing? Can I help you stir that? Yeah, here we go. And I just talking through what I'm doing and my kids will learn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So how would you say that our American culture, our cuisine here, how does it define who we are today? Well, how it defines us today kind of well i hate i feel like american cuisine today kind of defines us a little bit more like uh impatient people <laughs> okay um, seeking instant gratification <laughs> one of the funny things is when when the covid first hit for example um we the, the restaurant i was working for was researching similar restaurants in seattle okay and the same style of restaurant in seattle had lost in just the first week 60 percent of their sales and you know a few weeks in they were down like 70 80 down yeah and that was that's brutal i mean a lot of food service that can that can bankrupt a business I mean shoot in a restaurant you lose a hundred dollars worth of food you paid a hundred dollars for this food and you lost it that could bankrupt your business how oh, something small like that it doesn't seem small 
but or it seems small, but it, it's significant, especially in the smaller businesses. So we looked at that and uh, I looked at our sales. I'm just going to throw random numbers out there, essentially, but general guidelines. We were serving, I don't know, probably ballpark $3,000 a night in sales. Okay. Averagely throughout the whole week. And as soon as COVID hit, we're looking at that going, oh, everyone over there is dying. Business is down. Everybody's going, not, not doing it. I don't know where those people were eating. I don't know what's going on because we went from 3,000 a night average to 5,000 a night average. So suddenly here on the east side of Washington, yours here, boomed. Here in Washington, ours boomed. And it it was really fascinating to me because people on the internet, Facebook, whatever, Instagram, and they're, oh, I'm so bored, I have nothing to do. I know exactly what everyone was doing. They were ordering our food. <laughs> <laughs> because I went from having plenty to keep myself busy to having a holy crap, there's no way in anything in my right mind I can get all of this done anymore because I have too much of this other to cook and do much food. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it, I, I feel like our food has de- has kind of defined us a little bit as looking, seeking that instant gratification and a little bit of that thrill that mm-hmm. we seek in food. A lot of strange, strange cuisines out there now. <laughs> yes, there are. What's the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Mungroon. What is that? <laughs> well, I, I will just tell you, initially, they brought it to me and said, hey, this came back from Thailand. you got to try this. And I was like, what is it? And they're like, I'll tell you when you're done eating it. I'm like, well, that's not going to change whether or not I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it whether I know what it is or not, because that's what I do. <laughs> Reverse, we're all the way back to the one thing you should taste in the kitchen. Everything. Yes. Uh, Mungroon is lobster brain paste. Okay. Um, it was not very salty. It was kind of sweet, actually. <laughs> but you have to imagine they had to boil down a whole lot of lobster brains to get this paste. <laughs> Interesting. What else do they use the lobster for? I have no idea what they... That, was, that wasn't anything on our menu. That was yeah. the owner had gone to Thailand... And, and came brought back, it back with Mungroon for her own food. Okay, what would you use it for in a dish? Um, flavor mostly, um, like you would use fish sauce. Okay. I would I would use that or a chicken base. Same same kind of concept, only it's lobster brain base. You, you don't think of it as lobster brain base. You think of it more as lobster base. Well, yeah. I mean, if people are talking about caviar or pate, they're not going to say what they're really made of. Every food tells a story. A story of its origins, migrations, technological changes, or cultural development. Food is the ultimate window into who we have been and who we currently are. We are innovators and culturally curious preservers of culinary wisdom. We are Americans, the most adventurous culinary culture on the planet. Join us next time on the Roast Podcast as we explore African-American culture foods and the history of slavery with Mr. Brown.
The Roast is brought to you by the Whitworth University Master of Arts in Administrative and Nonprofit Leadership, preparing leaders, educators, and organizers for a better future. Attend classes in the evening and complete your degree in two years. Discover more at www.whitworth.edu. Thank you.